You're listening to WCWS Wu 91 at 90.9 FM, a public service station of the College of Worcester. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. One hundred years ago this month, H.H. H. Monroe, better known as Saki, died in the trenches of World War I. The old ban of three men on a match is more than a superstition. His last words before he fell victim to an enemy sniper were, put that bloody cigarette out. At the start of the war he was 43 and officially too old to enlist. He turned down a commission and joined the army as an ordinary soldier on the battlefield, often returning to the front when he was officially still too sick or injured. Striking that a writer whose characters were usually lofty members of the leisure class should at the end of his life demonstrate such solidarity with ordinary working people. Here are three of his best stories. The Open Window by Saki My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Nuttall, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttall endeavoured to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. "'I know how it will be,' his sister said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat." You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Mrs. Sappleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. "'Do you know many of the people around here?' asked the niece when she judged that they had had sufficient silent communion. Uh, "'Hardly a soul,' said Frampton. "'My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here.' He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. "'Then you know practically nothing about my aunt,' pursued the self-possessed young lady. "'Only her name and address,' admitted the caller." He was wondering whether Mrs. Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An indefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. "'Her great tragedy happened just three years ago,' said the child. "'That would be since your sister's time.' "'Her tragedy?' asked Frampton. Somehow, in this restful country spot, tragedies seemed out of place.' "'You may wonder why we keep that window wide open on an October afternoon,' said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened on to a lawn. "'It is quite warm for the time of year,' said Frampton. "'But has that window got anything to do with the tragedy?' "'Out through that window, three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back.' In crossing the moor to their favorite snipe-shooting ground, they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog. It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. 
Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day, they and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt! She has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest son, singing, Bertie, why do you bound? as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. But, you know, sometimes, on still, quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk in through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late in making her appearance. "'I hope Vera has been amusing you,' she said. "'She has been very interesting.' said Frampton. "'I hope you don't mind the open window,' said Mrs. Sappleton briskly. "'My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpets. So like you menfolk, isn't it?' She rattled on cheerfully about the shooting, and the scarcity of birds, and the prospects for duck in the winter. To Frampton it was all purely horrible— he made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk on to a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window and the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. "'The doctors agree in ordering the complete rest,' an absence of mental excitement, an avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton, who laboured under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailments and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Mrs. Sappleton, in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened in alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. "'Here they are at last!' she cried, just in time for tea, and don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes. Frampton shivered slightly, and turned towards the niece, with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with dazed horror in her eyes. In a chill shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the door. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulders. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk, I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid imminent collision. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Mackintosh, coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up? "'A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nuttle,' said Mrs. Sappleton, "'could only talk about his illnesses, and dashed off without a word of good-bye or apology when you arrived. 
one would think he had seen a ghost. "'I expect it was the spaniel,' said the niece calmly. "'He told me he had a horror of dogs. "'He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges "'by a pack of pariah dogs, "'and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave "'with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, "'enough to make anyone lose their nerve.' Romance at short notice was her specialty. Esme All hunting stories are the same, said Clovis, just as all turf stories are the same, and all— My hunting story isn't a bit like any you've ever heard, said the Baroness. It happened quite a while ago, while I was about twenty-three. I wasn't living apart from my husband then. You see— Neither of us could afford to make the other a separate allowance. In spite of everything that proverbs may say, poverty keeps together more homes than it breaks up. But we always hunted with different packs. All this has nothing to do with the story. "'We haven't arrived at the meat yet. I suppose there was a meat,' said Clovis. "'Of course there was a meat,' said the Baroness. All the usual crowd were there, especially Constance Broddle.' "'Constance is one of those strapping florid girls "'that go well with autumn scenery "'or Christmas decorations in church. "'I feel a presentiment "'that something dreadful is going to happen,' "'she said to me. "'Am I looking pale?' "'She was looking about as pale as a beetroot "'that has suddenly heard bad news. "'You're looking nicer than usual,' I said, "'but that's easy for you.' "'Before she had got the right bearings of this remark, "'we had settled down to business.' "'Hounds had found a fox lying out in some gorse-bushes. "'I knew it,' said Clovis. "'In every fox-hunting story that I've ever heard "'there's been a fox and some gorse-bushes.' "'Constance and I were well mounted,' "'continued the Baroness serenely, "'and we had no difficulty in keeping ourselves in the first flight, "'though it was a fairly stiff run. "'Towards the finish, however, "'we must have held rather too independent a line, "'for we lost the hounds and found ourselves "'plodding aimlessly along, miles away from anywhere. "'It was fairly exasperating, "'and my temper was beginning to let itself go by inches, "'when, on pushing our way through an accommodating hedge, "'we were gladdened by the sight of hounds in full cry "'in a hollow just beneath us. "'There they go!' cried Constance, "'and then added in a gasp, "'In heaven's name, what are they hunting?' "'It was certainly no mortal fox. "'It stood more than twice as high, "'had a short, ugly head, "'and an enormous, thick neck. "'It's a hyena!' I cried. "'It must have escaped from Lord Pabham's park.' "'At that moment the hunted beast "'turned and faced its pursuers, "'and the hounds, there were only about six couple of them, "'stood round in a half-circle and looked foolish.' Evidently they had broken away from the rest of the pack on the trail of this alien scent, and were not quite sure how to treat their quarry now they had got him. The hyena hailed our approach with unmistakable relief and demonstrations of friendliness. It had probably been accustomed to uniform kindness from humans, while its first experience of a pack of hounds had left a bad impression. The hounds looked more than ever embarrassed as their quarry paraded its sudden intimacy with us, and the faint toot of a horn in the distance was seized on as a welcome signal for unobtrusive departure. Constance and I and the hyena were left alone in the gathering twilight. "'What are we to do?' asked Constance. 
"'What a person you are for questions,' I said. "'Well, we can't stay here all night with a hyena,' she retorted. "'I don't know what your ideas of comfort are,' I said. "'But I shouldn't think of staying here all night even without a hyena. "'My home may be an unhappy one, but at least it has hot and cold water laid on, "'and domestic service and other conveniences which we shouldn't find here. "'We had better make for that ridge of trees to the right.' I imagine the Crowley Road is just beyond. We trotted off slowly along a faintly marked cart track, with the beast following cheerfully at our heels. What on earth are we to do with a hyena? came the inevitable question. What does one generally do with hyenas? I asked crossly. I've never had anything to do with one before, said Constance. Well, neither have I. If we even knew its sex, we might give it a name— "'Perhaps we might call it Esme. That would do in either case.' There was still sufficient daylight for us to distinguish wayside objects, and our listless spirits gave an upward perk as we came upon a small half-naked gypsy brat picking blackberries from a low-growing bush. The sudden apparition of two horsewomen and a hyena set it off crying— and, in any case, we should scarcely have gleaned any useful geographical information from that source. But there was a probability that we might strike a gypsy encampment somewhere along our route. We rode on hopefully but uneventfully for another mile or so. "'I wonder what the child was doing there,' said Constance presently. "'Picking blackberries, obviously.' "'I don't like the way it cried,' pursued Constance. Somehow its wail keeps ringing in my ears. I did not chide Constance for her morbid fancies. As a matter of fact, the same sensation of being pursued by a persistent fretful wail had been forcing itself on my rather overtired nerves. For company's sake I hallooed to Esme, who had lagged somewhat behind. With a few springy bounds he drew up level and then shot past us. The wailing accompaniment was explained. The gypsy child was firmly, and, I expect, painfully, held in his jaws. "'Merciful heaven!' screamed Constance. "'What on earth shall we do? What are we to do?' I am perfectly certain that at the last judgment Constance will ask more questions than any of the examining seraphs. "'Can't we do something?' she persisted tearfully, as Esme cantered easily along in front of our tired horses. Personally, I was doing everything that occurred to me at the moment. I stormed and scolded and coaxed in English and French and gamekeeper language. I made absurd, ineffectual cuts in the air with my thongless hunting crop. I hurled my sandwich case at the brute. In fact, I really don't know what more I could have done. And still, we lumbered on through the deepening dusk, with the dark, uncouth shape lumbering ahead of us, and a drone of lugubrious music floating in our ears. Suddenly Esme bounded into some thick bushes where we could not follow. The wail rose to a shriek, and then stopped altogether. This part of the story I always hurry over, because it is really rather horrible. When the beast joined us again, after an absence of a few minutes— there was an air of patient understanding about him, as though he knew that he had done something of which we disapproved, but which he felt to be thoroughly justifiable. "'How can you let that ravening beast trot by your side?' asked Constance. She was looking more than ever like an albino beetroot. "'In the first place, I can't prevent it,' I said, "'and, in the second place, 
Whatever else he may be, I doubt he's ravening at the present moment. Constance shuddered. Do you think the poor little thing suffered much? came another of her futile questions. The indications were all that way, I said. On the other hand, of course, it may have been crying from sheer temper. Children sometimes do. It was nearly pitch dark when we emerged suddenly into the high road. A flash of lights and the whir of a motor went past us at the same moment at uncomfortably close quarters. A thud and a sharp screeching yell followed a second later. The car drew up, and when I had ridden back to the spot, I found a young man bending over a dark, motionless mass lying by the roadside. "'You have killed my Esme!' I exclaimed bitterly. "'I'm so awfully sorry,' said the young man. "'I keep dogs myself, so I know what you must feel about it. I'll do anything I can in reparation.' "'Please bury him at once,' I said. "'That much I think I may ask of you.' "'Bring the spade, William,' he called to the chauffeur. Evidently, hasty roadside interments were contingencies that had been provided against. The digging of a sufficiently large grave took some little time. "'I say, what a magnificent fellow!' said the motorist, as the corpse was rolled over into the trench. "'I'm afraid he must have been rather a valuable animal. "'He took second in the puppy class at Birmingham last year,' I said resolutely. Constance snorted loudly. "'Don't cry, dear,' I said brokenly. "'It was all over in a moment. He couldn't have suffered much.' "'Look here,' said the young fellow, desperately. "'You simply must let me do something by way of reparation.' I refused sweetly, but as he persisted, I let him have my address. Of course we kept our own counsel as to the earlier episodes of the evening. Lord Pabham never advertised the loss of his hyena. When a strictly fruit-eating animal strayed from his park a year or two previously, he was called upon to give compensation in eleven cases of sheep-worrying and practically to restock his neighbor's poultry-yards, and an escaped hyena would have mounted up to something on the scale of a government grant. The gypsies were equally unobtrusive over their missing offspring. I don't suppose in large encampments they really know to a child or two how many they've got." The Baroness paused reflectively, and then continued. There was a sequel to the adventure, though. I got through the post a charming little diamond brooch with the name Esme set in a sprig of rosemary. Incidentally, too, I lost the friendship of Constance Broddle. You see, when I sold the brooch, I quite properly refused to give her any share of the proceeds— I pointed out that the Esme part of the affair was my own invention, and the hyena part of it belonged to Lord Pabham. If it really was his hyena, of which, of course, I've no proof. Sredni Vashtar Conradin was ten years old, and the doctor had pronounced his professional opinion that the boy would not live another five years. The doctor was silky and effete and counted for little, but his opinion was endorsed by Mrs. de Rop, who counted for nearly everything. Mrs. de Rop was Conradin's cousin and guardian, and in his eyes she represented those three-fifths of the world that are necessary and disagreeable and real. The other two-fifths, in perpetual antagonism to the foregoing, were summed up in himself and his imagination. 
One of these days Conradin supposed he would succumb to the mastering pressure of wearisome necessary things, such as illness and coddling restrictions and drawn-out dullness. Without his imagination, which was rampant under the spur of loneliness, he would have succumbed long ago. Mrs. de Ropp would never, in her honestest moments, have confessed to herself that she disliked Conradin, though she might have been dimly aware that thwarting him for his good was a duty which she did not find particularly irksome. Conradin hated her with a desperate sincerity which he was perfectly able to mask. Such few pleasures as he could contrive for himself gained an added relish from the likelihood that they would be displeasing to his guardian, and from the realm of his imagination she was locked out, an unclean thing which should find no entrance. In the dull cheerless garden, overlooked by so many windows that were ready to open with a message not to do this or that, or a reminder that medicines were due, he found little attraction. The few fruit-trees that it contained were set jealously apart from his plucking, as though they were rare specimens of their kind blooming in an arid waste. It would probably have been difficult to find a market-gardener who would have offered ten shillings for their entire yearly produce. In a forgotten corner, however, almost hidden behind a dismal shrubbery, was a disused tool-shed of respectable proportions, and within its walls Conradin found a haven, something that took on the varying aspects of a playroom and a cathedral. He had peopled it with a legion of familiar phantoms, evoked partly from fragments of history and partly from his own brain, but it also boasted two inmates of flesh and blood. In one corner lived a ragged-plumaged Houdan hen, on which the boy lavished an affection that had scarcely another outlet. Further back in the gloom stood a large hutch, divided into two compartments, one of which was fronted with close iron bars. This was the abode of a large polecat ferret, which a friendly butcher-boy had once smuggled, cage and all, into its present quarters in exchange for a long-secreted hoard of small silver. Conradin was dreadfully afraid of the lithe, sharp-fanged beast, but it was his most treasured possession." Its very presence in the tool-shed was a secret and fearful joy, to be kept scrupulously from the knowledge of the woman, as he privately dubbed his cousin. And one day, out of heaven knows what material, he spun the beast a wonderful name, and from that moment it grew into a god and a religion. The woman indulged in religion once a week at a church nearby, and took Conradin with her, but to him the church service was an alien rite in the house of Rimon. Every Thursday, in the dim and musty silence of the tool-shed, he worshipped with mystic and elaborate ceremonial before the wooden hutch where dwelt Sredni Vashtar, the great ferret. Red flowers in their season and scarlet berries in the wintertime were offered at his shrine, for he was a god who laid some special stress on the fierce, impatient side of things, as opposed to the woman's religion, which, as far as Conradin could observe, went to great lengths in the contrary direction. And on great festivals powdered nutmeg was strewn in front of his hutch, an important feature of the offering being that the nutmeg had to be stolen.
These festivals were of irregular occurrence, and were chiefly appointed to celebrate some passing event. On one occasion, when Mrs. Durop suffered from acute toothache for three days, Conradin kept up the festival during the entire three days, and almost succeeded in persuading himself that Sredni Vashtar was personally responsible for the toothache. If the malady had lasted for another day, the supply of nutmeg would have given out. The Houdan hen was never drawn into the cult of Sredni Vashtar. Conradin had long ago settled that she was an Anabaptist. He did not pretend to have the remotest knowledge as to what an Anabaptist was, but he privately hoped that it was dashing and not very respectable. Mrs. Durop was the ground plan on which he based and detested all respectability. After a while Conradin's absorption in the tool-shed began to attract the notice of his guardian. "'It is not good for him to be pottering down there in all weathers,' she promptly decided." and at breakfast one morning she announced that the Houdan hen had been sold and taken away overnight. With her short-sighted eyes she peered at Conradin, waiting for an outbreak of rage and sorrow, which he was ready to rebuke with a flow of excellent precepts and reasoning. But Conradin said nothing. There was nothing to be said. Something, perhaps, in his white, set face gave her a momentary qualm, for at tea that afternoon there was toast on the table, a delicacy which he usually banned on the ground that it was bad for him, also because the making of it gave trouble, a deadly offence in the middle-class feminine eye. "'I thought you liked toast!' she exclaimed with an injured air, observing that he did not touch it. "'Sometimes,' said Conradin. "'In the shed that evening,' there was an innovation in the worship of the hutch-god. Conradin had been wont to chant his praises. Tonight he asked a boon. "'Do one thing for me, Sredni Vashtar.' The thing was not specified. As Sredni Vashtar was a god, he must be supposed to know. And choking back a sob, as he looked at the other empty corner, Conradin went back to the world he so hated. And every night, in the welcome darkness of his bedroom, and every evening in the dusk of the tool-shed, Conradin's bitter litany went up, "'Do one thing for me, Sredni Vashtar!' Mrs. Durop noticed that the visits to the shed did not cease, and one day she made a further journey of inspection. "'What are you keeping in that locked hutch?' she asked. "'I believe it's guinea-pigs.' I'll have them all cleared away. Conradin shut his lips tight. But the woman ransacked his bedroom till she found the carefully hidden key, and forthwith marched down to the shed to complete her discovery. It was a cold afternoon, and Conradin had been bidden to keep to the house. From the furthest window of the dining-room the door of the shed could just be seen beyond the corner of the shrubbery, and there Conradin stationed himself. He saw the woman enter, and then he imagined her opening the door of the sacred hutch, and peering down with her short-sighted eyes into the thick straw bed where his god lay hidden. Perhaps she would prod at the straw in her clumsy impatience, and Conradin fervently breathed his prayer for the last time. 
But he knew as he prayed that he did not believe. He knew that the woman would come out presently with that pursed smile he loathed so well on her face, and that in an hour or two the gardener would carry away his wonderful god, a god no longer, but a simple brown ferret in a hutch. And he knew that the woman would triumph always as she triumphed now, and that he would grow more sickly under her pestering and domineering and superior wisdom, till one day nothing would matter much more with him, and the doctor would be proved right. And in the sting and misery of his defeat, he began to chant loudly and defiantly the hymn of his threatened idol. Sredni Vashtar went forth. His thoughts were red thoughts, and his teeth were white. His enemies called for peace, but he brought them death. Sredni Vashtar the Beautiful. And then of a sudden he stopped his chanting and drew closer to the windowpane. The door of the shed still stood ajar as it had been left, and the minutes were slipping by. They were long minutes, but they slipped by nevertheless. He watched the starlings running and flying in little parties across the lawn. He counted them over and over again, with one eye always on that swinging door. A sour-faced maid came in to lay the table for tea, and still Conradin stood and waited and watched. Hope had crept by inches into his heart, and now a look of triumph began to blaze in his eyes that had only known the wistful patience of defeat. Under his breath, with a furtive exultation, he began once again the peon of victory and devastation. And presently his eyes were rewarded. Out through the doorway came a long, low, yellow and brown beast with eyes a-blink at the waning daylight, and dark, wet stains around the fur of jaws and throat. Conradin dropped on his knees. The great polecat ferret made its way down to a small brook at the foot of the garden, drank for a moment, then crossed a little plank bridge, and was lost to sight in the bushes. Such was the passing of Sredni Vashtar. "'Tea is ready,' said the sour-faced maid. "'Where is the mistress?' "'She went down to the shed some time ago,' said Conradin. And while the maid went to summon her mistress to tea, Conradin fished a toasting-fork out of the sideboard drawer and proceeded to toast himself a piece of bread. And during the toasting of it and the buttering of it with much butter and the slow enjoyment of eating it, Conrad listened to the noises and silences which fell in quick spasms beyond the dining-room door, the loud foolish screaming of the maid, the answering chorus of wondering ejaculations from the kitchen region, the scuttering footsteps and hurried embassies for outside help, and then, after a lull, the scared sobbings and the shuffling tread of those who bore a heavy burden into the house. "'Whoever will break it to the poor child!' "'I couldn't for the life of me!' exclaimed a shrill voice. And while they debated the matter among themselves, Conradin made himself another piece of toast. You've been listening to three stories by Saki, The Open Window, Esme, and Sredni Vashtar.
I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud, brought to you every Sunday evening at 9 here on WCWS, Woo 91, a public service station of the College of Worcester. I hope you'll join me again next week. Be well, be happy, all the best.